0: chapter 14 of vera by elizabeth von arnheim this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 14 marriage lucy found was different from what she had supposed everard was different everything was different for one thing she was always sleepy for another she was never alone she hadn't realized how completely she would never be alone or if alone not sure from one minute to the other of going on being alone. Always in her life there had been intervals during which she recuperated in solitude from any strain. Now there were none. Always there had been places she could go to and rest in quietly, safe from interruption. Now there were none. The very sight of their room at the hotels they stayed at, with Wemyss's suitcases and clothes piled on the chairs. And the table covered with his brushes and shaving things for he wouldn't have a dressing room being too natural and wholesome he explained to want anything separate from his own woman the very sight of this room fatigued her after a day of churches pictures and restaurants he was a most conscientious sightseer besides being greatly interested in his meals to come back to this room wasn't rest but further fatigue wimms who was never tired and slept wonderfully, it was the soundness of his sleep that kept her awake, because she wasn't used to hearing sound sleep so close, would fling himself into the one easy-chair and pull her on his knee, and having kissed her a great many times he would ruffle her hair, and then, when it was all on ends like a boy's coming out of a bath, look at her with the pride of possession and say, there's a wife for a respectable British businessman to have. Mrs. Wemyss, aren't you ashamed of yourself?" And then there would be more kissing, jovial, gluttonous kisses, that made her skin rough and chapped. Baby, she would say, feebly struggling, and smiling a little wearily. Yes, he was a baby, a dear, high-spirited baby, but a baby now at very close quarters, and one that went on all the time. You couldn't put him in a cot and give him a bottle and say, there now, and then sit down quietly to a little sewing. You didn't have Sundays out. You were never, day or night, an instant off-duty. Lucy couldn't count the number of times a day she had to answer the question, who's my own little wife? At first she answered it with laughing ecstasy, running into his outstretched arms. But very soon that fatal sleepiness set in, and remained with her for the whole of the honeymoon, and she really felt too tired sometimes to get the ecstasy she quickly got to know was expected of her into her voice. She loved him, she was indeed his own little wife, but constantly to answer this and questions like it satisfactorily was a great exertion. Yet if there was a shadow of hesitation before she answered, and a hair's-breadth delay owing to her thoughts having momentarily wandered, Wemyss was upset. And she had to spend quite a long time reassuring him with the fondest whispers and caresses. Her thoughts mustn't wander, she had discovered. Her thoughts were to be his as well as all the rest of her. Was ever a girl so much loved? She asked herself astonished and proud, but, on the other hand, she was dreadfully sleepy. Any thinking she did had to be done at night, when she lay awake because of the immense emphasis with which Wemyss slept, and she hadn't been married a week before she was reflecting what a bad arrangement it was, the way ecstasy seemed to have no staying power. Also, it oughtn't to begin, she considered, at its topmost height, and accordingly not be able to move except downwards. If one could only start modestly in marriage, with very little of it, and work steadily upwards, taking one's time, knowing there was more and more to come, it would be much better, she thought. No doubt it would go on longer if one slept better and hadn't, consequently, got headaches. Everard's ecstasy went on. Perhaps by ecstasy she really meant high spirits, and Everard was beside himself with high spirits. Wemyss was indeed the typical bridegroom of the psalms, issuing forth rejoicing from his chamber. Lucy wished she could issue forth from it rejoicing, too. She was vexed with herself for being so stupidly sleepy, for not being able to get used to the noise beside her at night and go to sleep as naturally as she did in Eaton Terrace in spite of the horns of taxis. It wasn't fair to Everard, she felt, not to find a wife in the morning matching him in spirits. Perhaps, however, this was a condition peculiar to honeymoons, and marriage, once the honeymoon was over, would be a more tranquil state. Things would settle down when they were back in England, to a different, more separated life, in which there would be time to rest, time to think, time to remember while he was away at his office, how deeply she loved him. And surely she would learn to sleep, and once she slept properly she would be able to answer his loving questions throughout the day with more real élan. But there in England waiting for her, inevitable, no longer to be put off or avoided, was the willows. Whenever her thoughts reached that house they gave a little jump and tried to slink away. She was ashamed of herself, it was ridiculous, and Everard's attitude was plainly the sensible one, and if he could adopt it surely she, who hadn't gone through that terrible afternoon last July, could. Yet she failed to see herself in the willows. She failed altogether to imagine it. How, for instance, was she going to sit on that terrace? We always have tea in fine weather on the terrace, Wemyss had casually remarked apparently quite untouched by the least memory. How was she going to have tea on the very flags, perhaps where? Her thoughts slunk away. But not before one of them sent a curdling whisper through her mind. The tea would taste of blood. Well, this was sleeplessness. She never in her life had had that sort of absurd thought. It was just that she didn't sleep and so her brain was relaxed and let the reins of her thinking go slack. The day her father died, it's true, when it began to be evening, and she was afraid of the night alone with him in his mysterious indifference, she had begun thinking absurdly. But Everard had come and saved her. He could save her from this, too, if she could tell him. Only she couldn't tell him. How could she spoil his joy in his home? It was the thing he loved next best to her. As the honeymoon went on and wemyss's ecstasies a little subsided, as he began to tire of so many trains after Paris they did the chateau country and hotels and waiters and taxis and restaurants and the cooking which he had at first enjoyed now only increased his longing at every meal for a plain English steak and boiled potatoes, he talked more and more of the willows with almost the same eagerness as that which had so much enchanted and moved her before their marriage, when he talked of their wedding day, he now talked of the willows and the day when he would show it to her. He counted the days now to that day, the fourth of April, his birthday. On that happy day he would lead his little wife into the home he loved. How could she, when he talked like that, do anything but pretend enthusiasm and looking forward? He had apparently entirely forgotten what she had told him about her reluctance to go there at Christmas. She was astonished that, when the first bliss of being married to her had worn off, and his thoughts were free for this other thing he loved so much, his home, he didn't approach it with more care, for what he must know was her feeling about it. She was still more astonished when she realized that he had entirely forgotten her feeling about it. It would be, she felt, impossible to shadow his happiness, of showing her his home by any reminder of her reluctance. Besides, she was certainly going to live at the Willows, so what was the use of talking? I suppose she did say hesitatingly one day, when he was describing it to her for the hundredth time, for it was his habit to describe the same thing often. You've changed your room? They were sitting at the moment, resting after the climb-up on one of the terraces of the Château of Ambois, with a view across the Loire of an immense horizon, and Wemyss had been comparing it to its disadvantage, when he recovered his breath, with the view from his bedroom window at the Willows. It wasn't very nice weather, and they both were cold and tired, and it was still only eleven o'clock in the morning. Change my room. What room? he asked. Your—the room you and— the room you slept in. My bedroom? I should think not. It's the best room in the house. Why do you think I've changed it? And he looked at her with a surprised face. Oh, I don't know, said Lucy, taking refuge in his stroking hand. I only thought. An inkling of what was in her mind penetrated into his, and his voice went grave. You mustn't think, he said. You mustn't be morbid. Now, Lucy, I can't have that it will spoil everything if you let yourself be morbid. And you promised me before our marriage you wouldn't be. Have you forgotten?' He turned to her and took her face in both his hands and searched her eyes with his own very solemn ones, while the woman who was conducting them over the castle went to the low parapet and stood with her back to them, studying the view and yawning. "'Oh, Everard, of course I haven't forgotten.' I've not forgotten anything I promised you, and never will. But have I got to go into that bedroom, too?" He was really astonished. "'Have you got to go into that bedroom, too?' he repeated, staring at the face enclosed in his two big hands. It looked extraordinarily pretty like that, like a small flower in its delicate whiteness, next to his discolored, middle-aged hands, and her mouth since her marriage seemed to have become an even more vivid red than it used to be, and her eyes were young enough to be made more beautiful instead of less, by the languor of want of sleep. "'Well, I should think so. Aren't you my wife?' "'Yes,' said Lucy, but—' "'Now, Lucy, I'll have no buts,' he said, with his most serious air, kissing her on the cheek. She had discovered that just that kind of kiss was a rebuke. Those butts of yours butt in. He stopped, struck by what he had said. "'I think that was rather amusing, don't you?' he asked, suddenly smiling. "'Oh, yes, very,' said Lucy eagerly, smiling too, delighted that he should switch off from solemnity. He kissed her again, this time a real kiss, on her funny, charming mouth. "'I suppose you'll admit,' he said, laughing and squeezing up her face into a quaint, crumpled shape. That either you're my wife or not my wife, and that if you're my wife—oh, I'm that all right! laughed Lucy. Then you share my room. None of these damned new-fangled notions for me, young woman. Oh, but I didn't mean—what, another but! he exclaimed, pouncing down on to her mouth and stopping it with an enormous kiss. Monsieur et madame se refroidiront, said the woman, turning round and drawing her shawl closer over her chest as a gust of chilly wind swept over the terrace. They were honeymooners, poor creatures, and therefore one had patience. But even honeymooners oughtn't to wish to embrace in a cold wind on an exposed terrace of a chateau, round which they were being conducted by a woman who was in a hurry to return to the preparation of her Sunday dinner. For such purposes hotels were provided, and the shelter of a comfortable warm room. She had supposed them to be père et fille when she first admitted them, but was soon aware of their real relationship. Il d'Ouatre bien riche had been her conclusion. "'Come along, come along,' said Wemyss, getting up quickly, for he too felt the gust of cold wind. Let's finish the chateau or we'll be late for lunch. I wish they hadn't preserved so many of these places. One would have been quite enough to show us the sort of thing. But we needn't go and look at them at all," said Lucy. Oh, yes, we must. We've arranged to. But Everard, began Lucy, following after him, as he followed after the conductress, who had a way of darting out of sight round corners. "'This woman's like a lizard,' panted Wemyss arriving round a corner only to see her disappear through an arch. Won't we be happy when it's time to go back to England and not have to see any more sights? But why don't we go back now, if you feel like it? asked Lucy, trotting after him, as he on his big legs pursued the retreating conductress, and anxious to show him, by eagerness to go sooner to the willows than was arranged, that she wasn't being morbid. "'Why, you know we can't leave before the third of April,' said Wemyss, over his shoulder. "'It's all settled.' "'But can't it be unsettled?' "'What, and upset all the plans, and arrive home before my birthday?' He stopped and turned round to stare at her. "'Really, my dear,' he said. She had discovered that my dear was a term of rebuke. "'Oh, yes, of course,' she said hastily. "'I forgot about your birthday.' "'At that,' Wemyss stared at her harder than ever, incredulously, in fact, forgot about his birthday. Lucy had forgotten. If it had been Vera now, but Lucy! He was deeply hurt. He was so much hurt that he stood quite still, and the conductress was obliged, on discovering that she was no longer being followed, to wait once more for the honeymooners, which she did clutching her shawl round her abundant French chest and shivering. "'What had she said?' Lucy hurriedly asked herself, nipping over her last words in her mind, for she had learned by now what he looked like when he was hurt. "'Oh, yes, the birthday! How stupid of her! But it was because birthdays in her family were so unimportant, and nobody had minded whether they were remembered or not.' I didn't mean that," she said earnestly, laying her hand on his breast. Of course I hadn't forgotten anything so precious. I it only had—well, you know what even the most wonderful things do sometimes. It—it had escaped my memory. Lucy, escaped your memory, the day to which you owe your husband. Wemyss said this with such an exaggerated solemnity, such an immense pomposity, that she thought he was in fun and hadn't really minded about the birthday at all. And, eager to meet every mood of his, she laughed. Relieved, she was so unfortunate as to laugh merrily. To her consternation, after a moment's further stare, he turned his back on her without a word and walked on. Then she realized what she had done. That she had laughed, oh, how dreadful, in the wrong place. And she ran after him, and put her arm through his, and tried to lay her cheek against his sleeve, which was difficult because of the way their paces didn't match, and also because he took no notice of her, and said, Baby, baby, were his dear feelings hurt then, and coaxed him. But he wouldn't be coaxed. She had wounded him too deeply, laughing, he said to himself, at what was to him the most sacred thing in life the fact that he was her husband, and that she was his wife. "'Oh, Everard! she murmured at last, withdrawing her arm, giving up. "'Don't spoil our day.' "'Spoil their day? He?' That finished it. He didn't speak to her again till night. Then, in bed, after she had cried bitterly for a long while, because she couldn't make out what really had happened, and she loved him so much, and wouldn't hurt him for the world— and was heartbroken because she had, and anyhow was tired out. He at last turned to her, and took her to his arms again, and forgave her. I can't live, sobbed Lucy, I can't live if you don't go on loving me, if we don't understand. My little love, said Wemyss. Melted by the way her small body was shaking in his arms, and rather frightened, too, at the excess of her woe. My little love, don't, you mustn't, your Everard loves you, and you mustn't give way like this, you'll be ill. Think how miserable you'd make him then." And in the dark he kissed away her tears, and held her close till her sobbing quieted down. And presently, held close like that, his kisses shutting her smarting eyes, she now the baby comforted and reassured, and he the soothing nurse, she fell asleep. And for the first time since her marriage slept all night." End of chapter 14.